The Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host. As always, I'm grateful that you are spending this time with me. And I think I think your time will be rewarded this week because we have a really lovely show and there's kind of a theme to it. It's about the senses and travel. Our second guest gets at travel through the sense of taste. But our first guest, who is Jen Rose Smith, wrote the most delightful article for the Washington Post. It's called Aromas Can Evoke Beloved Journeys. Okay, here is Jen Rose Smith. So, Jen, a lot of us travel writers have spent the last year writing about virtual travel, how to have experiences by listening to great podcasts or watching streaming video from places around the world. And yet you wrote, I got to say, it was a poem of a piece. It was a beautifully written piece for the Washington Post about how smell may be this, the sense that helps bring the world to us most potently. Why is that? I mean, smell has this really profound connection to memory. So one of the scientists I spoke with for the piece explained to me that the part of our brain that senses smell is just physically very close to the part of our brain that processes, processes emotions and memory. So you know, I think that when we smell something from a place that we have vivid memories of, it can just bring us right to that place immediately. And you said, is it part of the limbic system smell? Yeah. Is that the- yeah. So the olfactory bulb is where smell is processed in our brains. And then the limbic system is where a lot of emotions and memories seem to be processed. So, you know, one thing that he told me is that when you see something or where you hear something, that information kind of takes a roundabout route getting to your limbic system and smells just go straight in there. But even though they go straight in there, you may not recognize what they are unless you're told, right? Yeah, I would think that's absolutely true. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes you get a smell and you think, oh God, that smells like kindergarten or that smells like my first year of college. And you can even have that memory before you even think, oh, I know what that smell is. You know, that smell of crayons or the smell of a plant that was blooming on your college campus. And so a lot of curators and artists are now going to be trying to harness the power of smell to give us different touristic experiences. I, I don't, and I don't want to reduce them to touristic, but but these are often experiences in museums and other places that visitors come to. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for that? Yeah, or I what's think already is, happened too? I think this is so wonderful. So for the piece, I spoke with this woman, Caro Verbeek, who's a scent historian in Europe, and she has worked with a number of museums to create these olfactory experiences to go alongside museum pieces. So you're standing in front of a painting of the Battle of Waterloo and you smell something that is kind of what you would have smelled if you were standing there in person. So you get some of Napoleon's perfume and the smell of horses and the smell of mud. And 
I think there's going to be a lot more there. You know, a lot of people in the world of aromas think that it's been a little bit neglected when compared to other senses, but there's so much research happening. And so I know that there's a lot of interest in recreating these historic scents, but also just ways that scent can contribute to immersive experiences. So you mentioned virtual travel at the beginning of the segment. And I think that people are bringing aroma into virtual experiences as a way to make them sort of more, more immediate and more vivid and more like experiencing the world firsthand. Well, can you explain what you mean by virtual experiences? Yeah. So for example, I, there is a place where I live in Vermont that is exploring virtual reality. And one of the program or one of the projects that they're doing is intended to illustrate climate change in different communities. So you put on this virtual reality headset, you look around you, you're standing in a small village in Samoa. And so you have sounds, you have sight, but you're also getting some scent coming in through the headset. And that's a big part of being in a place. And I think it just sort of adds texture to our experience of, of a situation. And it, it really can bring the uh, bring the experience to life. I loved when you were describing the uh, water battle Battle of Waterloo painting, and how one woman, when she started smelling the horses, she thought the painting was moving. She said, "Those horses are moving." Because it, it became such a much more visceral experience to look at that painting with the smells added to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that we can find connections that we would not otherwise notice when we have smells. So Caro also explained to me that some people said, God, this painting smells like my grandmother. And the thing that they were noticing is that the perfume Napoleon used is one that for many, many years in Europe was a popular choice for women's perfume. And so the painting really did smell like their grandmother. And they're kind of forging a connection between the experience of being in the Napoleonic Wars and something really intimate, something from their own lives. It's fascinating that that the curators or the, the scent creator would know what perfume Napoleon wore. How, how, do you know how he knew that? Or it you wasn't know, in the article, so I might be stumping you here. That is a really good question. I believe that there are perfume houses in Europe that have been making perfumes continuously since that sure. time. And actually, I just got this beautiful perfume in the mail that is made in Bermuda. And the way it was created, I think about 10 years ago, they found a ship that sank in the 1850s. And in the ship were two intact bottles of perfume from that time. And they were able to open the bottles and recreate these perfumes. So whenever I put it on, I think, I smell like someone in the mid-19th century. And you know, I think (laughs) that 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 is part of what's so fascinating about perfume is people have loved putting on beautiful scents for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Although probably a a long time ago, those scents were really important because you would have had more more things rotting around you. You might have had more pungent fertilizer smells. I mean, we've done a lot in our society to tamp down natural odors that probably existed before. It's true. And one thing that you definitely hear when you speak to scent historians is they'll say that the past was really stinky. And if, you know, it's like very romantic to imagine going to 
I don't know, 18th century Paris, but 18th century Paris was probably pretty stinky. They did not have the kind of widespread sewage systems and trash collection that we have now. Just to end this where you started, you start by talking about the Amaro you created, and it's a beautiful passage. It's uh, and you you say uh, that this brings you back to was it Cyprus? So can you can yeah. you tell us about the Amaro and what's in it? And and maybe this is a way for our listeners to have a bit of a travel experience on their own, even if they can't get these virtual reality headsets or go to a museum that's using scent right now. Yeah, you know, so Amaro is this bitter Italian style liqueur that you infuse with some herbs and flowers. You can put fruit in there. And I just started thinking about the smells of places that I've experienced. And Amaro, because you can add almost anything, it's the perfect vehicle for infusing aromas. So I was thinking about how powerful the smells of the island of Cyprus were. I spent a winter there a few years ago, and I just remember hiking in places where oregano grew on the ground and you would smell the oregano coming up from the ground. And I would think of the fresh grapefruit I would buy the side of the road and roses and banana groves. And so I put a lot of those scents into a bottle of high proof vodka and let it sit for a while and then strain them out. (laughs) And, you know, now whenever I want to travel to that place, I sort of pour a little bit out on on the rocks and enjoy it. And I feel like I'm in Cyprus again. Uh Uh, How wonderful. Well, Jen, it has been such a delight speaking with you and reading you in the Washington Post. Many congratulations on a wonderful article. Thank you so much, Pauline. It was great to talk to you. Once again, that was Jen Rose Smith talking about her really terrific article, which was in the Washington Post and called Aromas Can Evoke Beloved Journeys. Okay, next up, we have Lara Lee. Lara is the author of a really delightful new cookbook. But unlike most cookbooks, this is really a, a book about culture as well. It is a hardcover filled with glorious photos and really, really interesting text. It's called Coconut and Sambal Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen. Well, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Lara. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. It's just such an honor to be on the show. Well, I think, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, that with the exception of Bali, this is the first time we've ever handled the country of Indonesia. And I think that that's the way it is for for many, both travelers and travel writers. The people think to go to Bali, but they don't know to go to the rest of the country. Uh, would you agree that that's a shame? I felt so after reading your lovely book. Oh, it's it's so true. And I think, you know, growing up in Australia, the first holiday that most couples go on is to Bali. But my, my dad is from Timor and, you know, Indonesia has 17 and a half thousand islands, uh, wow. 6,000 of which are populated. So it is a hugely diverse country, uh, you know, multiple religions, uh, different uh, kind of landscapes, 
uh, different produce grows in different areas, different uh, influences from several hundred languages, right? Yes, that's right. So I think, uh, you know, one of my motivations when I wrote my cookbook really was to uh, kind of hopefully expand the reader's mind into what else uh, is beyond Bali from a culinary standpoint, and hopefully, hopefully kind of uh, spike some interest into uh, people wanting to to travel to some of those other islands, which are beautiful and you know Im- immense. So yeah. Well, what I I loved about the book is it not only has gorgeous photos, but you also go into depth about the culture and about uh, what is common throughout this uh, these widely diverse islands and what what is different from place to place. Uh, So let's start out with a little bit about what is common. You named the book Coconut and Sambal, and that's because those are the two ingredients that everybody uses. For our listeners who may not know what sambal is, and am I saying it correctly? Yes, you're you're saying it correctly. Sambal is is how I say it. That that is correct. Mm. Okay, so Uh, what is it? Sure. So sambal is at its most basic definition, it's a very spicy condiment that's made with chili. Now there are around 350 types of sambal across Indonesia. So each region has its own specialty and there are also sambals that are eaten nationwide. Uh, But what I found incredible about sambal is that Indonesians use sambal in the way that in the West we might use tomato ketchup or mustard or salt and pepper. It, it's used to season the food in, in a way. And, and a little bit of sambal is eaten with every bite of food. And a lot of people believe that a meal isn't complete without it. So you'll always find at least one or two varieties of sambal on every uh, dinner table at every meal. If it is not on the table, it is a glaring omission in the way that if you sat at a table and someone didn't have a a knife and a fork on the table, you might think, well, what are we going to do here? So you've got to have sambal. And what I loved is as I traveled across Indonesia from the west to the east, the food varies, what grows varies, but always on the table was sambal or a variety of different sambals and also um, an element of the coconut and whether that was, you know, coconut milk. Uh, in 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 dishes, grated coconut, you know, in warm salads, the coconut shell is used for utensils. You know, the husk of the coconut was used to um, create kind of a fragrance to fire as you're grilling satay. Mm. Uh, you can kind of extract co- uh, coconut sugar from the nectar of the coconut tree. So it, you know, Indonesians have a no waste philosophy. So end to end, that coconut tree is used, and, uh, and-, and you'll find coconuts. Everywhere. And you and you use the coconut to clean with too. You right? do, you do. I I that this sounds to me. Oh, I've never seen that. So I was just so delighted when um I was uh learning to cook with a family in Padang in West Sumatra, and uh they made fresh coconut milk by uh you massage the grated coconut with water to create beautiful fresh coconut milk called Santan. And uh they they didn't discard the grated coconut that they had used to make the coconut milk. They used that grated coconut to remove like the stains of turmeric on the kitchen tiles mm. or stains of splatters of oil on the cement floor. And it's just incredible how that no waste philosophy really does follow through in every aspect of, of Indonesian life. Right. 
And you approached Indonesian cooking. And let's go into a little bit about your story now. You were not brought up in Indonesia, even though you have that heritage. And yet it is a very, what's the word, generous part of the Indonesian culture that allowed you to learn about the cuisine and about your heritage. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and got interested in this and then about how you gathered the recipes in this book, which is just fascinating? Oh, thank you. Yes. You know, I'm sure that many of your listeners will have a familiar kind of uh, feeling when I talk about this and describe my upbringing. But, you know, I, I grew up in Sydney uh, my father immigrated to Sydney from Timor when he was 22. Uh, you know, he kind of came to Australia with nothing. And I am so proud of him and the, the man he is today because, you know, he, he worked his way up to be able to support his family. But, you know, we were poor, and, uh, but we were happy and we had good food. But, um, but, you know, we couldn't afford to visit Indonesia as a family until I was an adult. So my access to Indonesia as a culture, as a country, was really through the stories that my dad would tell me uh, growing up. Um, and I was very, very lucky that my, um, my grandmother on my father's side, my, my Timorese grandmother, came to live with us when I was little as well. So through my grandmother and my father, they collectively kind of described the magic of Indonesia to me. And, you know, this is in an age, this is in the 80s, this is before the internet. So everything that you learn is through books or maybe what you might have seen on TV or through stories, but also through what was on the dinner table. And my my grandmother uh, was an incredible cook. So, you know, uh, it was a very special time for us, um, you know, at at dinner time was because my my father worked two jobs to support us in the mornings Mm -hmm. and in the nights. Wow. And at dinner at, I think it was five or six o'clock in the evening was that one time that our family got to sit together at the table. And on the table was a feast of Indonesian food, you know, spiced Balinese chicken, gado gado, mm. you know, dressed in a gorgeous, warm peanut sauce. Uh, there was sambal, which I didn't eat so much when I was little. It was a bit too spicy for me. But, the, you know, chicken satay. Uh, there was a whole host of different dishes. And so I learned to, you know, I learned um, and understood the flavors of Indonesian food, even though I had never set foot in Indonesia. So when I, you know, was able to eventually travel there when I was about 21 or so, it was an immediate sense of feeling like I had come home. I, you know, I set foot on Indonesian soil. I, I went to Bali. I did, we did go to Bali. We went to uh-huh. Timor as well. Um, and it was... A, all the stories that I had been told, you know, the, the size of the sun, the sunset, um, the, the fragrance of, of the, the street food that filled the streets, the colors of the buildings, you know, everything was brighter and more beautiful than I could have imagined. I kind of felt like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when everything becomes color, you know, you just kind of understand what something really is. Well, you see that on the pages of your book, that the colors and the textures are just extraordinary. I mean, every single little village, it seems, uses every color on the rainbow uh, to paint the outside and the interior of their houses. It's just such exuberance in the look of of that country. Uh, it really was surprising. It's just, it's it's a wonderfully exciting place to visit. And Indonesians do love color. And I think that is something that I really fell in love with. Um, you know, even in 
the kind of most rickety kind of, you know, family restaurant hidden in the corner of a back street somewhere. You'd walk in and, you know, it's hot outside. There's a sound of motorbikes whizzing past in the street. But I loved, you know, you'd sit at a table. um, It would be a laminate kind of table and there'd be a, you know, bright condiment bottles, big, you know, bright, luminous green kind of bowls, bright pink cups and everything's just, you know, everything looks so appetizing and, and delightfully happy. And I, and I think that really comes across in, uh, also in, in the way that Indonesians, uh, you know, treat each other. I think, you know, what I had exhibited in my, in my own family, my, in my dad and my grandma was, you know, always a generous hospitality and welcome to others. But uh, it really kind of came into its own when I was researching the book and uh, many, many, many Indonesians, you know, from far and wide helped me, uh, you know, teach, teach me their, their, or taught me their family recipes. Well, that's and, what I wanted to, to, mm. to, to bring you to. You say that in Indonesian culture, there's something called gotong roya. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, I think I, I, I'm probably, you know, totally destroying how that's pronounced, but uh, it's this feeling of community. And I was so touched by the fact that you would meet people who you had never met before, and they would bring you into their kitchens and show you how they cooked things and would not accept a cent for uh, the cost of the ingredients, for their time. This was considered something that you do for your community that you you teach and you don't accept monetary repayment for that my my dad actually uh warned me that you know uh well I say warn in a in a nice way he he warned me that you know um people will help you and they will not accept money so when i went on these research trips i packed my, the majority of my suitcase was packed with gifts ah. that i could give them uh, you know, things that you might not be able to get in Indonesia, you know, they might be toys for their children mm. or uh, particular types of chocolates or gifts of food, things that were special that they would just think, I cannot get this in Indonesia, how, how marvelous. So, so that was something that I kind of wheeled, you know, this suitcase along, which probably had, you know, three t-shirts, two pairs of shorts and a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> and the rest was really just filled with all of these gifts that I could give to these home cooks. Um, and I would always try to to offer, you know, to, to pay for the ingredients wherever I could, but, you know, it, it, the hospitality is just so warming and there is such a great, there's such a great pride in the cuisine that, um, you know, if, if I had visited a street food market and had explained, you know, what I was trying to do, that I was researching a cookbook, the, you know, the person that I had spoken to would say, oh, you have to meet my auntie or you have to meet my cousin mm. or my neighbor is a wonderful home cook who cooks the perfect, you know, dish from this region, you must visit her. And we would WhatsApp. And then the very next day I would be in their kitchen. And somehow, you know, it would always end up being, you know, eight or nine people in this house. So people seem to just take the day off work to kind of help this lady writing a book. (laughs) And I think it helped also, you know, I have Indonesian heritage. So, you know, um, there's this kind of wonderful notion, which you mentioned, and you perfectly pronounced it, Gotong Royong, which is to help your neighbor and it's this sense of community to achieve a common goal. And, and for, for the Indonesians I met, you know, for them to think that their food would uh, become, you know, globally recognized was mm. for them, you know, a very proud moment and they were very, yeah. very happy to help and, and really well, welcomed me like a member of their own family. Mm. Right. That's, uh, uh, well, you do have the, the rice topple in, uh, 
in Holland, uh, which is based on Indonesian food. But it's only been fairly recently that it's become a world cuisine. I mean, when you think of how ubiquitous Chinese food is in many parts of the world and Indian food, Indonesian is, is new to the culinary scene. Now, you talk about uh, the, the book is a book of recipes, a book filled with glorious photos, as I said, uh, but also stories about the people who gave you some of the foods. And you, you go to the home of a taxi driver and you know how much the meat is costing him. And, and they, he cooks you a, a beef rendang and you, you are touched by, you know, this is a very much a special occasion dish. And yes, yet they give it to you. Uh, or you go to a very, very modest looking restaurant where you learn that the chefs or the, the family that runs the restaurant have to get up at 2 a.m. every day so that they can grind the spice mix and then, I guess, encrust it in a uh, cow's head mm-hmm. for a broth, which they then cook for several hours before anyone else is awake. And in that way, you you bring to life the incredible pride and hard work and uh, love that goes into these foods, even in the most modest places. I, I think that is what, you know, the, the takeaway from me when I visit in Indonesia and I learned these dishes is, is, is how food is food represents love in many ways for Indonesians so if you visit someone's home you will always be welcomed with snacks or a tray of either homemade you know d- d- um, dishes or something that they've just bought fresh at the food market but you know people will spend an entire lifetime um, mastering a single dish and there are many many restaurants that only specialize in that one dish and mm. the the owner and and who also happens to be the chef, will have mastered that recipe for 30 years or perhaps that recipe has belonged in the family for too many generations to count and it just keeps getting refined and refined to this perfect moment that sits in a bowl in front of you. And I think when you're eating a a dish that has that much family history in it and that much love, it really does make the food taste even better. And I think the food tastes incredible anyway, but when you know the history that comes with it, and you know, for some dishes, there's uh, there's a little sweet snacks in Indonesia called jajanan pasar. There's many many versions and varieties of jajanan pasar, but they're typically made from glutinous rice flour and pandan or different types of lovely sweets and palm sugar and coconut. But you know, the tradition of that sweet is over a thousand years old, and and I and I love when you eat those types of foods that you're eating a thousand years of history, and yeah. it's just incredible to. To, to to eat and to understand. But I think, you know, the, the people's stories feel just as important as the recipes themselves when it comes to comes to researching a book like this for me. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, I'm mm. going to ask you probably what is an, a, an impossible question for the, the last question of this interview, because it's not a question you answer in the book. Uh, if you were to send one of our listeners to Indonesia, somebody who loves food, and they can't spend as long as you have uh, going from island to island and trying all the different varieties. Where would you send them? Is there one like uh, in Italy, for example, where every different region has actually very different food stuffs? Most Italians will say that Bologna has the best food in Italy. So I would send a real foodie to Bologna. Is there an equivalent 
in Indonesia? Or is that an impossible question? For me, this is actually quite an easy uh, question to answer because um, there's a particular style of restaurant that I think is is the is the perfect introduction to uh, a traveler to Indonesian food. So in an area, um, oh well, the area is, is West Sumatra, and in the city of Padang, in West Sumatra, it's quite a big city, uh, and a lot of surfers actually visit that city because there is a, some amazing islands off that city that they can with huge kind of uh, waves. But uh-huh. in, in the city of Padang, there's a particular style of eating and, and restaurants. And so you'll look inside of these restaurants um, that belong to the people of uh, that area are the Menangkabau people. And the uh, windows are filled with big bowls that are stacked on top of each other, one on top of the other, almost like a little tower. So probably four or five kind of stackings of these bowls on top of each other. And you go inside of the restaurant and there's always in a in the same uniform. They might be all wearing blue. There might be hmm. ten waiters, which seems extraordinary. But the restaurant will be bustling with people, and you sit down, and the waiters will bring you thirty dishes. Every single bowl in that window will be wow. plated onto small little dishes. I guess in the way that you could imagine tapas being eaten. Uh-huh. And um, then you'll have thirty plates set on your table, even if you're just by yourself. And then you pay for what you eat. So you will then look at the 30 plates. Without, so you don't even have a menu. And then you'll say, hmm, that looks really good. That looks really good. And, and West Sumatra and the Padang uh, as a city is really famous for some, some key dishes that you might know, like rendang. But it's uh-huh. very bold and rich flavors, uh, a little bit spicy. Um, and you'll really get a bit of an understanding of the different textures and the sensory aspect of Indonesian eating when you eat in a Padang style restaurant, because you'll perhaps get, you know, uh, a curry, you might get something that's deep fried and crunchy. You'll get a lovely vegetable dish. You might get a, you know, um, a, you'll get a quite a few sambals. There'll be lots of different textures. And so it'll be a feast for the eyes, a feast for the stomach. But you'll also get all of the smells of all those dishes and the sounds of, you know, um, Indonesian crackers called krupuk being crunched and eaten mm. while you eat them. So it's a very much an experience to eat in one of those restaurants. So that would be my, my recommendation. Wow. Oh, my mm. goodness. I want to go. All yes. right. Well, thank you so much, Lara. It has been such a delight speaking with you. And I'm so thrilled to have the book because I'm going to try and cook some of your recipes. And for anybody who loves cookbooks as I do, the nice thing that Lara does is she sometimes simplifies. That, that's fair to say that you, you don't, you know, you, you tell what the traditional way to make something is, but you don't assume that all of us can maybe have a deep fryer in our kitchen, that, that there are other ways that you can recreate these flavors. Is that fair to say? Exactly. I, I wanted it, I think because Indonesian food perhaps hadn't had its time in the mainstream yet, I did want the book to feel approachable and accessible, as well as staying as close to the authenticity as possible. So it has a mix of the two, I think. You know, if you do want to do the traditional route, this is how you do it. But if you want to pan fry and bake it in the oven, that's going to work too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a delightful book, as I said, a book of, about culture as well as recipes. Thank you so much, Lara, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's a true honor. Thanks, Pauline. Well, that is it for this week's show. 
thank you so much for listening. As I always say at this point, I hope you'll visit us at fromers.com. I have started a new project there. You know, with nobody traveling, it feels like the world has frozen in place. And when we get back to travel, it'll all be the same as before. But obviously, that's not logical. That's just a feeling. It's not a reality. And so I decided to concentrate on some of the good things that are changing, some of the countries and attractions and facilities that have decided to use this pause to make the visitor experience even better when the visitor experience starts up again. And so there's there's an interesting resource for journalists. It's called HARO, which stands for help a reporter out. And you can put a query up there. And I asked, what destinations are going to be better after this terrible pandemic is over? What changes are coming to destinations that you know about? I heard from so many destinations and it, it was so interesting because a lot of them were destinations that, that feel like they were that, that they're old-fashioned places, that they're places that already have so much appeal and that that appeal is historic that you don't expect them to change. But even those kinds of destinations change. Like, for example, the Loire Valley in France. That is this gorgeous wine-growing region dotted with chateaus. And a lot of those chateaus are going to be doing different things with their gardens to make them more visitor friendly. So for example, one of them created two different paths, one of which concentrates on ornithological concerns. So it's all about the birds and it shows you where where birds tend to nest. It, It helps you spot the birds of the region. And the other one had to do with all of the international plants that had been brought into the region over the, not just the decades, but the centuries, you know, these were chateaus, mansions, and, and these were people who, the people who owned them often had money in trade. And so they would bring back trees from Japan and shrubs from Argentina and plants from all over the world. And so you kind of get a plant zoo on the grounds of these historic chateaus. As well, uh, in the town of Amboise, there was the last resting place and home of Leonardo da Vinci. The king decided, hey, I could use a guy like Leonardo in my court. He might invent some fun stuff and maybe draw me some beautiful things. And so he put up da Vinci in his chateau in France, in the Loire Valley, for the last three years of his life. And there's a new museum there about those last three years, about the things he invented and the glorious works of art he created and and kind of about his life. So it's not just what he created in France, which to be honest, his output was small. He actually mostly concentrated on throwing big, elaborate parties for the king. So ephemeral events uh, took up much of Leonardo's last couple of years. They supposedly were spectacular, but all we have are are written reports of them. They weren't the lasting things that Leonardo da Vinci created. Anyway, 
So the Loire Valley is one of, of the places I covered. Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, which is uh, home to the Pennsylvania Dutch, a very old-fashioned group of different religious groups. So you have the Amish there, the Mennonites, the uh, traditional Lutherans. Uh, many of them don't use electricity or and dress in homemade clothes, but that doesn't mean things don't change in Lancaster County. There's a new muscle car <laughs> museum among all the horse and buggies of that area, and it looks fabulous. As well, there's a historic home dedicated to one of George Washington's generals. He was the man who lived there. And they have created a museum to the craftsmanship of that area. So musket making and cabinet making and fine chairs. So it's, it's all antiques of the area. They're doing, they're, they're displaying them in an interesting way. They're not just talking about the objects. They're talking about the people who created those objects and what went into the craftsmanship and who owned them and why did they need so many muskets? Uh, so it, it should be another really good reason uh, to go to Lancaster County. And I love Lancaster County. It's a fabulous area. I actually spent about five months there back in the days when I was an actor at their gorgeous opera house doing a production of the musical company. So I got to know the area very well. It's a beautiful area with a fascinating history and now these two new great attractions. So this is all a long way of saying I'm going to be writing a bunch of these. I heard from places around the world where new things are going to be debuting just around the time we all start traveling again. Knock wood. I'm knocking on wood. So uh, please visit us at fromers.com. Consider signing up for a newsletter subscription, which is absolutely free. Please support your local bookstores by going in and buying a Fromer guide or a good, good novel. I thank you so much for listening. And to those of you who are lucky enough to be traveling, either now or in the coming months, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching K.